Hey, Slingers, welcome back to another week of the Word Slinger podcast. Now, could you leverage your existing career for your writing career? That's what today's guest did, and we're going to talk all about that and more, so stick around. It's the Word Slinger Podcast, where story matters. Build your brand, write your book, redefine who you are. It's all about the story here. What's yours? Now, here's the guy who invented pants optional, Kevin Tomlinson, the Word Slinger. Word Slinger. Well, I am Kevin Tomlinson, the Slinger, and I really appreciate you being here today. Um, now we are—we're going to get right into this interview with George Mercer. Uh, this guy's—he had, had a career three decades long uh, as a national park warden in Canada, and he drew on that experience to inform the fiction that he writes. He writes. These very interesting thrillers. I love the covers, by the way. We talk a little about all this in the interview, so you're going to want to stick through all that and stick around afterward. I'm going to just share with you some goings-on in the wordslinger world. Uh, a few things. Uh, well, we got a couple of things. Some, some no- items of note, we'll say. So thank you for tuning in. Stick around. Listen to this interview with uh, George Mercer, and I'll see you on the other side. Hey, everybody. Thank you for sticking around through the intro and for giving us a a shot here today. Now, I'm chatting with an author. I love talking to authors and uh, I get plenty of them here, but I'm I'm talking to George Mercer. And uh, we're going to be talking about his work, his newest work and uh, his career. Uh, He's coming to us live from Vancouver. So uh, thanks for thanks for coming all this way, George. (laughs) <laughs> hey, it's uh, it's great to be here, Kevin. Your boy, your arms tired. Um, <laughs> no, so we we had a little chance to chat before the show. Uh, so uh, let's let's hop right into your work. Um, now, what's your? You've got a book that you you're just releasing right now, right? Yeah. So I'm actually uh, a former national park warden in Canada. Okay. And I'm and I'm writing the first fiction series written about Canadian national parks. Uh, A mystery suspense series uh, started with a book called Died in the Green, which is the title book for the series. And I've just released book four, which is called Fat Cats, um, set here in the Gulf Islands between uh, Washington State and Vancouver Island. That's a, now I love, so I'm a, uh, but I'm a thriller writer myself, uh, and I think it's kind of interesting when people are writing about these these venues. So you you write mysteries. I'm assuming it's things like someone's murdered in the forest, and you what is it like a park ranger that's uh, looking into this? Yeah. So the series actually is uh, so we call ourselves national park wardens in uh, okay. Canada, but we're the, we're the equivalent of park rangers and uh, throughout the world. Um, and the first book actually died in the green. It is a mystery suspense series. The first book died in the green is actually more along the lines of a murder mystery. Um, but that's not necessarily the intent for all of the stories. They all have a mystery suspense element to them. And really what they're about is uh, dealing with the issues that face national parks and protected areas, not only in Canada, but in the U S and around the world and uh, trying to ramp them up a bit with a little bit of a mystery suspense angle to, uh, entice fiction readers who might not other otherwise read a story about our national parks right uh, into learning something about national parks here in Canada and around the world I think I actually like uh 
calling you guys wardens better than rangers anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a term that uh, I think it's uh, more than 100 years old that came about because uh, in Canada, uh, park wardens were initially fire wardens and it was okay. all around uh, being, uh, you know, fighting forest fires and that. And, and I think the law enforcement component came a little later on, but yeah, it's, uh, it is a unique term, but um, it's basically compatible with the term park ranger that's used pretty well globally. Yeah. So now are you, you you're retired from uh, being a, a warden? I, yeah. So worked as a national park warden for more than 30 years, uh, worked in six national parks from the East coast of Canada to uh, Northern Canada, the Rocky mountains, and ended up here on the West coast to help establish a Gulf, uh, a national park here in the Gulf islands. And, um, yeah, I retired in 2012 and decided to turn my passion for parks and protected areas and my interest in writing into a second career of writing fiction. How's it, how's it going so far? <laughs> well, I think it's going quite well. I've been able to put a book out each year of the last four years oh, and uh, just did the third printing of uh, my first book, Died in the Green. And uh, I'm self-published, but I have uh, a great... Uh, an awesome cover designer from Portland, Oregon. Uh, the only thing that's not Canadian about my series is a cover designer by the name of Dan Stiles, who's done, oh, the, okay. he's done the cover art for a well-known Canadian writer by the name of Patrick DeWitt. And uh, yeah, so I think so far so good. And I'm working on a book outside of the series as well as book five in the series. So I've got lots on the go. That's fantastic, man. So uh, what, now you said you're self-published. I'm also self-published, so we're, okay. we're brethren here. Um, <laughs> so, what made you decide to go with self-publishing? Uh, I think you know I'm. A, I'll have to say I'm a little bit of a rammy, uh, impatient person, and mm -hmm. I actually wrote the first book, Died in the Green, uh, almost 20 years ago when we worked in Jasper National Park in the Rockies. Uh, but the story was really about our, our experiences in Cape Breton Highlands National Park on the East Coast. Um, I tried to attract uh, a, a traditional publisher with the first draft of Died in the Green. It didn't get any uh, any hits at all, but uh, right. then it set for about 15 years. And uh, when our kids were grown, when I retired, I, I went back at Died in the Green. And um, I made a, a couple of inquiries, but what I found basically was that you, uh, you know, you you make a submission and you're supposed to get a response within six months. And often I wouldn't hear for a year and a half. Right. And actually on my second book, I got some interest from a publisher, but it was 18 months after I had made the submission. And I said, you know what, my book's already out. It's already published and it's already selling in stores. So, um, I may be, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I decided to keep going with the self-publishing gig. And to be quite honest with you, I'm pretty happy with the end product that uh, I put out. And I think my readers are as well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm converted. So there's, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little biased about this, but you know, 40 books in, I think I'm, I'm pretty okay with this self-publishing thing. But uh, so that's, that's interesting. Uh, so you did get a response from a, from a trad uh, publisher. Was it, positive were they looking to buy it well they were looking they they wanted to see the manuscript and uh like i say by that time i'd already um you know I, it was 18 months after the fact and by that time i'd already assumed they weren't interested 
Right. And after actually getting the first book out and realizing that it was actually a fairly straightforward process, plus having uh, a great editor, cover person, and layout person, three different people working with me, I decided, oh, I'll just keep going because uh, it gives me the autonomy that I like, uh, right. the independence to do my own thing. And like I say, at the end of the day, I, I think uh, the end product is as good as traditional publishers put out there. Yeah, I mean, again, biased, completely biased. But I, <laughs> I feel, and I've had a traditional contract, and, I, and I've been self-publishing for more than 10 years now. Wow, and okay. uh, I feel like I, I've gotten far more out of self-publishing than I ever did out of the traditional uh, route. So hmm. completely well, biased. That's <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. To hear. And, I, and I've certainly met several authors in the few years that I've been writing. I certainly have met several authors who had traditional publishers who pulled away from them because they didn't feel they were getting the attention. Right. And the, uh, you know, the timelines were always getting pushed out. And yeah, so at the end of the day, I'm pretty happy to be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. So how are you promoting the book? Or the so, books, rather? Yeah, so it's... Uh, I guess a little bit of paid advertising. I'm on social media through Facebook, my own website and things like Twitter and that, but uh, probably Facebook is uh, the biggest thing. I do a little bit of paid advertising with some uh, book magazines here in Canada. And I do have uh, a small distributor helping me that's based in Southern Alberta, but uh, definitely exposure and distribution are my biggest challenges. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I think you're not alone in that. No. <laughs> discoverability. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I do find, I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing is word of mouth as people are learning about the series. Like I just did a, a couple of Christmas markets and I've got a few more to do. And I find that I have a pretty good success rate if I uh, engage people and just ask them if they've heard about the series and tell them that it's the first fiction series written about our national parks and each story set in a different national park in Canada. Yeah. Um, it, it grabs people and I actually get, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, getting hooked on it uh, just with that face to face encounter. Yeah. I feel like you have a good hook. Like uh, you could probably reach out to these publications that are, that are aimed at that, that market are aimed at, you know, pres preservation of these, areas or just activities you know like hiking and camping and that sort of thing you i feel like you could probably get some play for these books in markets like that have you tried that sort of thing yeah i mean i've um yeah the short answer is yes i mean i definitely uh i definitely have a connection with parks across the country and um you know i go into national parks and and right. do some uh, signings and readings and things like that. But yeah, no, definitely the outdoor, uh, the outdoor folks, people that are into hunting and fishing, people that yeah. are into conservation. It's a pretty uh, broad spectrum, I think, of potential readership out there. Yeah. I like how it kind of narrows things down a little because there are plenty of people, you know, it's actually um, it, it, the first person I thought of when you started describing what you were doing was uh, James Rollins, the, uh, the thriller author, who often ends up writing about uh, parks, park rangers, uh, all th that sort of thing. I mean, he branches into all kinds of things, but I, I noticed that as a theme occasionally with his work. So first thing I thought of, but... Yeah, so I, I guess my initial inspiration was from uh, Nevada Barr, who was a former U.S. National Park Service yeah. ranger. And uh, I mean, 
uh, now a best-selling author. Right. But uh, I have to say, like, and I, I love her writing. I, I found it a little bit more uh, sort of blood and guts than we would expect to happen in uh, Canadian <laughs> right. national parks. So right. I tried. I try to write stories that are still fictional, but probably a little bit more plausible for parks here in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Blood and guts. That's that sells books. Blood and guts sells. <laughs> so, what's a typical story like? I mean, what's the? Uh, you want to give me a rundown of the of the latest one, the Fat Cat? So, so that's book four. One, you said right. That's, that's book four. Yeah. So, in the latest one, uh, basically the series follows two main characters, Ben Matthews and Kate Jones, who are park wardens, follows them across Canada. But in book three, I introduce a character. Uh, John Halfcut, his name is, and uh, if you read any uh, Edward Abbey, he's sort of a Haydu type character. He's a little okay. bit of a rogue park warden who decides to take matters into his own hands. Uh, and he's he's kind of forced out of Jasper after uh, what happens in Jasper National Park. And I, I won't yeah. get into all the details of what happens in Jasper Wild, my third book. But when he comes to the Gulf Islands, his partner is actually the park superintendent, Ann Winters. And she's tasked with trying to establish this new national park. And she's kind of hoping that John will uh, stay out of trouble and, right. uh, and not sort of cause too much turmoil for her. But in the course of uh, learning about the Gulf Islands, he realizes that the islands are just overrun with deer because there are no predators left on the islands. Right. And, uh, but then during his work, he finds out that a, a cat, uh, a cougar has made its own way. It swam from Vancouver Island proper to out to this Gulf Island. And uh, so he discovers the cougars on the island and decides to not tell anyone about it and just let it do its thing to knock down the overabundant deer population on the island. But unfortunately, some of the landowners on the island find out about the cougar and, uh, and basically they take a vote to have it destroyed. And then when John finds out about this, he decides to take matters into his own hands and he kind of puts his career on the line and the fate of the cougar uh, on the line. And he comes up against a, a fairly notorious cougar tracker who the Islanders have hired to uh, kill the cougar. And uh, it gets into a little bit of uh, intrigue with uh, one of the landowners in, in particular who shows up uh, dead and uh, there's there's some speculation as to whether he was killed by the cougar or killed by a person. And uh, John knows or has a pretty good idea what happened. But uh, now he not only has to deal with this uh, notorious cougar tracker, he also has to deal with the potential uh, story of, you know, the cougar actually uh, killing a person and all the ramifications that that has for him trying to restore cougars to the islands. Wow. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I can say, I can see these plots get uh, kind of elaborate. <laughs> I, yeah. The plot, the plot thickens, as they say, I mean, it's a fairly straightforward story. And I, yeah. I guess one of the things that I try to do is uh, uh, even though there are mystery suspense, I try to really give the reader a strong sense of place about these national parks, these areas that we've set aside as uh, you know, our special places and also the, the ecology of them and uh, try to incorporate those with sort of novel twists and turns that make it interesting for the reader and uh, hopefully educate the readers about, you know, some of the wildlife that are protected within our parks, some of the yeah. wildlife habitats. Yeah. And a bunch of different uh, 
aspects to sort of the, just the ecology and the nature of these special places. Yeah. Okay. So do you, are you a plotter? Do you plot these books out, outline these books? I sort of have a, I have a general idea of what's going to happen, but uh -huh. I really, I really don't lay a lot out on paper. I, I kind of have uh, an inciting incident and right. I go from there. And, uh, and I'm always amazed at how these stories take twists and turns that I never really planned or thought out, but right. uh, you know, I really think it adds a lot to the story and uh, I'm always intrigued by, by the end, I'm thinking, wow, I never thought this is where it was going to end up. Right. <laughs> That's good, though. If, if there's surprise, what's the old adage? If there's surprise in the reader or surprise in the writer or surprise in the reader or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I probably just butchered that. <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but I think, well, I think what you're saying is, is very true. You know, I think, uh, and that's the kind of feedback I'm getting, you know, from folks who have read uh, my latest book. Yeah. They're, you know, uh, they're all sort of, uh, they all comment on sort of, yeah, I wasn't really sure where that was going, but you know, a very interesting spin on it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, you get a lot of positive reviews, I take it. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get, you probably know this yourself, starting out, for me anyway, it's hard to get formal reviews, but uh, I do get lots of feedback from, from readers, and I'll often get emails from folks who take the time to say, hey, I got into your series, I, you know, read the books, and I just read Fat Cats, for instance, and uh, really liked it, so, and that actually does probably more for me than anything else, that's more validation than anything else, I think. Right, yeah, uh, I, I think... I'd rather hear from the readers than from the, the uh, official publication. Although it is nice to get those official reviews somewhere, uh, mostly because you, you know, you get the thrill of knowing that other people are going to discover that a little easier, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. And there, there is a, there is a publication here called BC book world that uh, okay. does reviews for readers or it does reviews of authors and that uh, particularly local BC authors. And, um, there's a fairly major review coming out of Fat Cats in the next issue of that that I'm oh, pretty, okay. excited, pretty excited about. It's a, a former professor at one of the universities that's read it and, uh, you know, he, he, has, he has lots of positive things to say. So I'm hoping that that'll uh, jumpstart, uh, you know, more interest in my, in my books. I kind of no. dropped the ball a bit this summer because I, uh, I was away quite a bit this summer, but... Uh, now I'm putting a push on to get uh, more word out there about fat cats. So this is pretty much what you do now, um, sort of a full-time gig now? Pretty much. It's, uh, yeah, ever since 2012, uh, I've really have focused on my writing. I was initially intending probably to do more in the nonfiction line of things, but right. uh, I did some fiction writing courses, got a lot of encouragement from the instructor who's a best-selling author here in Canada. And uh, then I got a really good response with Died in the Green, the first book and the title book in the series. Right. And just went from there. So I'm pretty well, I'm pretty well 24 7, 365, um, yeah. a writer. I like how uh, Died in the Green has that built in pun. Um, not a pun, really, but the whole died, died thing is, is that play there. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. That was an expression that uh, I heard from a, a fellow park warden in the Northwest Territories. And uh, he said to me one day, you know, I worked for this older chief warden who would comment that uh, people who are committed to preservation, conservation parks and protected areas, it's not that there's so much dyed in the wool, 
they're dyed into green. Mm -hmm. And as soon as Eugene told me that line, I said, you know, that's going to be actually the title of uh, the first book I write. Yeah. And, and then when I got the first book out, I, I kind of thought, well, I've got one book in me for sure. But when I got the first book out, I realized, okay, you know, I, I'm very keen on turning this into a series. And, and so it is the name of the series. And it's, for lack of a better expression, it is, it is kind of the brand that I'm going with. Yeah, yeah, no, I like it. Uh, it has it has uh, some intrigue built into it because you need to know, you know, there's a little hint of uh, some murder mystery in there, but you need to know what this phrase means because it sounds like it might be, it could potentially be a familiar phrase, but you've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> so also something know. that, it's also something that, uh, you know, when I first connect with Dan Stiles and sent him my draft manuscript and, and he came back with uh, cover concepts for me. And uh, the first one, he had two in an email and the first one was sort of, uh, I wasn't, it didn't really sh strike me as being that, uh, uh, that relevant. But when I saw the cover art for uh, what ended up being the final cover art, for Dyed in the Green, I thought, man, he totally dialed it in because you have sort of the mystery and intrigue with the park warden walking through the bush at night with a, a flashlight, yeah. surrounded, by, surrounded by trees and the silhouette of a, of a deer skull. Uh, they're giving the indication, you know, of, of poaching. So, yeah, uh, the, I'm trying to think of what the style reminds me of. It's like the, um, I've seen this before. Like I've seen this kind of style of artwork before. It's very, it's going to completely escape me, man. I don't know. It's like those old posters. You used to see old posters yep. of, of, uh, you know, like even, even some of the old movie posters and stuff. So yeah. And, and there is type stuff. Yeah. I, I don't remember the fellow's name, but I know there is a, an artist from the Southern U S that, uh, sort of desert country, um, mm who had a style that I think to some extent Dan emulates, but uh, yeah. Dan, Dan very much has his own style. And every time I send him a manuscript, I'm kind of blown away by, uh, you know, the cover concept that he comes back with. And every, pretty well, everyone that I talk to just, you know, their first comment is, wow, your cover art is, is quite amazing. Yeah. It's got a little bit of a Pulp Fiction feel, I think. Mm -hmm. like those are whole Pulp novels, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's fantastic, man. So you talked a little about you, you talked a little about a couple of your inspirations, but what, you know, who are some of the deeper inspirations for your, for your work? Like what inspired you to, cause you talked about writing nonfiction, which would have seemed like a no, a no brainer to me, but the idea of using fiction to tell these, you know, to uh, kind of stir up some attention for these, uh, the things that are happening and they, these things you want to call attention to, like what, who inspired you into this? Um, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, some of the authors that I read, uh, I mean, back when one of my favorite authors was Edward Abbey yeah. and, uh, you know, books like the monkey wrench gang sort of inspired me to sort of build characters like Edward Abbey's characters into some of my stories here in Canada. I mean, the, uh, as a kid growing up, uh, writers like Farley Mowat. Um, right. In the last several years, uh, unfortunately, he passed away this past year, but a writer that really inspired me to try and tell as good a story as I can is uh, was a First Nations writer by the name of Richard Wagamese, 
who had uh, several several books out, um, uh, and all of them uh, just just great stories with a really strong sense of place, really strong characters. Right. And uh, and also back in the day, even though he was English by uh, he was a, a a fellow by the name of Archie Bellaney, who was known in Canada as Grey Owl. He uh, tried to pass himself off as a, a Native American and uh, or First Nations person. But he basically wrote a lot of stories set in our national parks, but uh, very much, you know, about the wildlife in parks and the ecology of parks. But uh, Grey Owl's books were also uh, inspirational as well for me at the time. And when I was sort of a, uh, a teenager or young adult. Yeah, that's a, I, I think I've actually heard that author name before. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I've read any of the work, but I think I've heard, at least heard the name. It sounds familiar. Yeah. So, and, and I'm not a, I'm not a voracious reader, but I do, I mean, I read quite a bit, but uh, yeah, like I say, Edward Abbey and the characters that he created, I think were, uh, and I mean, a lot of that, I think were you know, actually based on uh, his experiences as a park ranger in the U S but yeah. he always brought an interesting twist to his stories. Yeah. That sounds cool. Um, I, I, I apologize that I had not yet checked any of these books out, but I will. Uh, <laughs> but you know how these things go. We get all this uh, stuff running. I think I was only reproached by Rachel about, bringing you on like a couple of weeks ago. So at least we managed to, uh, to get that with one minor reschedule. We managed to get you. Yeah, on. no, I, I really appreciate <laughs> the, uh, the opportunity. No, it's great. That's fantastic having you. And we're at the end. Um, but I wanted to make sure that people knew where to find you and your stuff online. Like, uh, where's the best place to find you and your work? So probably the best place is through, uh, through Amazon, as far as internationally through Amazon. And uh, I'm in independent bookstores throughout Canada and Indigo stores in Canada. But I think as far as accessing it uh, in the States or in Canada or internationally would be Amazon. And also you can check out my website, which is simply georgemercer.com. Okay. All right. And of course, uh, everyone, you will find links to all this stuff in the show notes. So make sure you check that out at wordslingerpodcast.com. George, thanks so much for being a part of the show, man. I'm glad you were on. Hey, thanks for the time, Kevin. I appreciate it. And and likewise, I'll have to check out uh, your writing and and get into some of your books and uh, good luck with things. I appreciate that. I hope you enjoy them. I need to, maybe I need to start looking at your cover designer, Uh, get get some, uh, some Pulp Fiction style Maybe that's the wrong term. That could be the wrong term, but yeah, I'm not sure. That. I'm not sure, but hey, take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. You stick around for a second, and everyone else. Right now, you are hearing the groovy bridge music. You may dance in place at will, and uh, stick around for the uh, the final wrap up after probably a little bit of a commercial break. We'll see you all on the other side. Hear your book the way it was meant to be heard with a fully custom soundtrack based on your material, an album of music that perfectly fits your characters, your settings. Hear your book today. SonataInscribe.com Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, George Mercer, and I hope you got something useful out of that. I love the idea of using your career experience, even if you're still currently in that career, 
uh, or past career experience. I love the idea of leveraging that for your fiction. It kind of comes down to that that idea, that, that uh, sort of age-old advice everyone gets about write what you know. Um, and it, it what that comes down to, in my experience, <laughs> is to, you want to leverage the things that you encounter uh, daily. You want to leverage the things that you, you know from personal experience. Write what you know isn't about... Um, it's not, well, let's shift gears here a little. Write what you know is not actually about always writing only what you have directly experienced. I know that's the way some people interpret that. But in my experience, and from the advice I've gotten from mentors over the years, um, even Judy Bloom, I'm taking Judy Bloom's uh, master class right now. Um, she even talks about something like this. But the idea about writing what you know is... is um, you can think about circumstances. Let's just give, for example, uh, my books, Dan Cot the Dan Kotler books, the thrillers. Um, now, I've never been to Egypt. You know, I've never been on a dig site in Egypt. Uh, but I've been on dig sites, and I've uh, studied Egypt. I've looked at information about Egypt. I've watched films. I've uh, watched documentaries. Uh, I've, I've seen this uh, from a variety of angles. So what I'm able to do is synthesize uh, the things I've learned vicariously with the things I know from personal experience. And that allows me to to sort of uh, extrapolate, I guess. Now, there's a lot of guesswork in there, and you're going to get things wrong. And people are going to call you on it, especially <laughs> if you write a, a genre like thrillers, people are going to call you on it. People are uh, People like their details to be right. So, uh, and believe me, they will let you know. <clears throat> but... You can, uh, the resources we have available to us today, you know, things like Google Earth and uh, YouTube and uh, just, you know, a, a variety of websites out there. Uh, you can see maybe on the shelf behind me the uh, glowing shelf of wisdom back there. Um, I have a volume of At the uh, Atlas Obscura. They have a website that's just wonderful for getting ideas and for doing a little bit of research. Uh, so there are a lot of ways that you can sort of supplement your personal experience, but your personal experience is how you're going to find the emotion of those moments and how you're going to find uh, the details that make a moment feel real to the reader. So that's, um, that's, what, I, that's what I believe is meant by write what you know. In other words, don't try to... Uh, don't try to fake an emotion that you've never felt, uh, but you can you can probably get by with faking a location you've never visited or even a job you've never held. If you read up on um, how a uh, career works, for example, um, suppose you're writing about a uh, this is something I've been thinking about lately. Actually, uh, suppose you're writing about someone who is a train conductor, a train engineer. Uh, you may know nothing about the job. You may not have done the job yourself. You may not know any actual engineers, but you can go supplement that that knowledge with a little bit of study. YouTube is great for this kind of thing, by the way. Go on YouTube, type in any career you're interested in <laughs> or any topic you're interested in, and just watch the number of videos that pop up. And if you start going through that, you can start to get an idea of how something works. And the, the best way to make this work is to connect that idea to your own personal experience. And this is... Uh, this is something called synthesis, which is um, connecting uh, different ideas together 
through the through commonalities so i may not understand what a a train engineer does for a living um, i can learn what he does but i can connect other experiences i've had with what i'm learning so i can connect my own personal experience to that so that's that's writing what you know um <clears throat> and i've um made a career of writing what I know. Actually, what's been very helpful for me in that is copywriting because in copywriting, I get clients all the time who want me to write about industries I've never heard of <laughs> or industries I may have heard of, but I've never experienced things uh, that they've experienced. And, uh, you know, they can tell right away if you're just making something up. So you definitely never want to do that as a copywriter. So as a copywriter, I had to learn how to get more information about a topic. I had to get a deep dive. I had to go into these places. Sometimes I'd go in and talk to um, executives, and then I'd talk to people who work on a shop floor, or I'd work on maybe a, a oil rig or something. And uh, I would get all the information I needed in order to write copy that helped to uh, market and support this business. So <clears throat> that's been very helpful to me. I actually, I don't uh, particularly want to go back to my old copywriting career, but I'm very grateful for it, <laughs> for what it actually afforded me as a resource. Um, gave me a lot of useful skills, actually. The, the I think copywriting really is the best training uh, an author can have. It, it, it actually is. I mean, it, it gives you the opportunity to not only learn how to write to deadline, write quickly, write, write, you know, be focused and write under pressure, but also uh, how to do research um, and fast research at that rather than spend, you know, months and years researching something before you ever put pen to paper. You learn how to uh, go through and figure out what's important and what's not fairly quickly. And you can pull all that in through synthesis uh, into your writing and make that make, give your writing more breath, more life um, by adding details that you wouldn't have you wouldn't have had otherwise. So there's that's uh, that's a useful skill to have, but it's also useful because copywriting is a powerful marketing tool. It's the marketing tool in my world. Uh, it's the one I use the most, but it's. Um, you know, it it teaches you how to craft a message uh, and focus that message. So you're very cognizant of your audience all the time, which is another trait that authors need to nurture. So uh, if you've been looking for a path into writing and you're trying to figure out how to improve on both your craft and your uh, marketing skills, maybe try copywriting. You can get plenty of gigs doing it. If you go, there are tools out there... Um, I forget the name of the service now. Uh, it's completely slipped my mind. But there are a lot of services out there where you can go sign up to be a copywriter and uh, and you know you pitch for gigs and that sort of thing. You may not make a, a lot of money at it. I'm just going to be upfront with you. Uh, but you, it's worth doing, especially if you have a side gig that pays your bills. It's worth taking on these writing jobs just to learn from them, just to, just to practice uh, all the skills. That will be helpful to you in your own writing career and in, in your future writing career. So um, there's all that. Now, something I wanted to bring up today, because I've talked a little bit about sort of my process lately. Uh, and this is you guys are kind of the uh, you're my testing ground for some material here. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to put something together at some point. Um, I've got sort of the rudiments of it growing now. But one of the things that I've been doing lately is using um, Trello 
to organize all my work. And I may have mentioned this before. Now, I use Trello for the show. Um, I create for each guest that I have, I have a show card. Uh, I've got like a little swim lanes approach to moving them from, you know, upcoming interview to uh, to be produced, which is which means I've recorded the interview. I've got all their information. And that's the show card for that guest. And then uh, when I produce that episode, it goes live and I drop it into the season. So I've got 20, 2019 season five live is one of the boards I have on Trello, one of the cards actually, and um, I can uh, move move through that whole process, and that's how I know who's coming up, who's what. I've got their information on file. I've got everything I need to produce that episode, um, and I'm experimenting with different ways to to organize that. One thing about me, and maybe this is a trait you share, I don't know, but. Even once I've sort of worked out like this is my processes and this is how I do it, <laughs> I will I will literally come back to that over and over to refine that probably until I die. I mean, I've, I'm still refining my daily writing process and I've been doing this my whole life. So uh, one, I think that's important actually. I want to call that out because I think, I believe that uh, that's one of the things that, that will make you better at this is that you never quite settle on how you're going to do it. You you can get into the neighborhood of settling, right? You can get into the right zone. I know that I'm going to use this tool. I, I write in Scrivener, so I'm going, to, I'm going to use Scrivener to write my books. I know that I like Grammarly and Pro Writing Aid and Hemingway and tools like that. So I'm going to use those tools to help me with uh, pre-editing is what I'm calling it these days. Uh, that will change later. Who knows what I'll call it later. But, you know, I've, I've got a, some steps. Every now and then I take something out of those steps. And every now and then I add something new in. And I just sort of experiment to see, like, is this more efficient? Is this a better way? Is this, you know, if I, if I um, you know, write this short story in Scrivener, Am I able to do it as well as I would if I wrote it in Microsoft Word or Google Docs? Because there, there's a different environment there. There's a different, there are different sets of tools. And to me, a short story is a different animal than a book. I like Scrivener for books because it, it's non-linear in a way. Like I can, and I know there are ways to do this in Microsoft Word, by the way, but um, it doesn't work for me on Mac. Uh, for whatever reason, they don't include the same type tools uh, on Mac, but in Scrivener, I'm able to grab a scene and rearrange things, rearrange chapters. It's all very neat and easy to do. Uh, I don't have to worry that I'm going to lose something, screw something up, leave something behind. I know where it is. I can see it. That's primarily my, my way of using Scrivener. But uh, when it comes to shorter work, I, I tend to prefer Microsoft Word or something like, like Word because it's, it is completely linear. So my short stories, I don't tend to rearrange scenes as much. They're, they're almost, uh, front to end. They're, they're pretty linear in their storytelling, um, because they're compact and I need, I need that efficiency. So word forces me to be efficient. It's a lot like copywriting. So I have two different tools for two different types of writing. And I think that is, um, that, that works well for me. It might work well for you. You might consider that. So getting back to Trello, um, now I've been using it for producing the show for the past couple of years, but it's only been recently that I've started using it for um, 
my fiction, organizing, you know, sort of the mechanics around everything, but also the writing itself. Now, I think I could probably, if I were an outliner, I, I can see a way to use this as an outline tool. Um, one of the ways that I do things, so my books start with a title. And <laughs> which is, I think maybe that's surprising to some people. Maybe it's not. I actually, uh, almost, almost, we'll say 98% of the time when I sit down to write a book, I have the title already chosen for it. And I write the book to that title, uh, much the same way. Some people will buy a pre-made cover and they'll write a book based on the cover, which by the way is an idea I love. Um, I've never really done it. I think I've I've sort of done that because I actually paid someone to design the covers for uh, Citadel and didn't like the direction they were going, and so I rebuilt those covers myself. So, uh, but in rebuilding them, it changed the direction uh, for some of what I was doing. So that's kind of my experience in writing to a cover design. I'm gonna try that one day. I'm just gonna buy a pre-made. It's it's hard for me because I like to make my covers, but I'm just gonna buy a pre-made cover someday and write a book to that cover just for the fun of it. Anyway, um, I write based on the title and that informs the entire story for me. It's usually almost a punchline to the story. If you think of it in terms of like a joke and, uh, it helps, it helps me keep on track. I, I know that if I'm writing about the stepping maze, that's the one that's coming out on uh, January 25th. I know that if I'm writing about that, that's that's got to be the focus of the book somehow. It's got to be the inciting incident, or it's got to be the MacGuffin. It's got to be something important to the story. Um, and some of my titles are a little esoteric. Um, none come to mind. <laughs> but you can almost, uh, if you go down the list of titles that I have, uh, the the Quelo Medallion. Well, the focus of that book is that medallion. Um the uh, the Atlantis riddle. Um, the focus of the book is solving this riddle of what might be Atlantis. Uh, that you know the, uh, the Devil's Interval. What is it? Why 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 do we care about it? What's the impact on the story? So each of those titles really is the subject of the book, and I may shift and move away from that um, in some respects, but in the end, that's that's the heart of the story. Um, in Trello, I keep a list of all these titles that are basically upcoming books. And then I also have my in-progress stuff. So what I've started doing, this is new. This is something I'm experimenting with. And it's, I'm going to refine this over time. Um, much like my show cards for my guests for the show, I have a card that is for a specific book. And over time, I build up all the assets for that book in that card. So I'll have the book's description. I'll have um, the cover. Um, I'll have, uh, if I get quotes from people, I'll have a list of the quotes. I have um, a list of the characters, places, artifacts. Um, I'm, I'm experimenting with how I want to handle all of that. Now, I, as I'm writing, I use Apple Notes uh, to keep track of all that information. I have this huge Dan Kotler note. Uh, but it's messy. It's, it's a little unorganized. It's perfect for quick reference for me, but eventually I want to hand all this stuff off to other people. I may make these, uh, the, the board with these cards public at some point, mostly so that when, uh, I do PR stuff, 
people have a resource to grab from. So if you are a, uh, a blogger or a podcaster and you're trying to feature me and my work, I send you a link to my Trello board for that, for that book or whatever, the card for that book, and uh, you've got everything you need. So, um, <clears throat> which means I may do one, I need to do one for my, uh, my author stuff, you know, uh, my photos, headshots, uh, a list uh, of links and social handles, uh, bios and different links. You know, you want to always have like a, uh, a range of like 25 words, 75, 100, you know, and maybe a, a long epic one uh, for people to draw from. Uh, so this, this is a way, using Trello in this way, allows me to kind of keep everything organized and uh, expand. And eventually it's going to mean that I can hand this easily off to other people to help me manage some of it. It's going to become more and more important as time goes by. Um, but what's here's what's interesting to me. <laughs> Several times now I've come to a point in my career where I thought, man, I need to hire a VA. I need to hire somebody to help me manage this stuff. Um, and each time... I've had to go through a process of refining and organizing so that it was ready to hand off to someone so that I wasn't wasting time and money um, making my job more difficult by giving it to someone else. And in doing that, I end up finding new ways to, to do all the work that make it easy enough for me to keep doing on my own. <laughs> so I never end up hiring. I briefly have had VAs in the past and, uh, I I have people I I call on for certain tasks, but for the most part, I kind of like having a one-man shop, you know? But I think eventually I will get to a point where I definitely want to be able to hand off some of the the tasks that I do that I don't need to do on a daily basis um, to someone else that is is qualified and uh, has all the resources he or she needs to to do the work. Um, I think that's, that's coming. I mean, I've been saying this for years, actually. But like the production of the show, I keep saying, oh, I need to hire someone to produce the show. So it's not such a burden on me. But I've refined this show to a point where there's nothing for me to hand off. I mean, if I hand off the production, it's I'm not really handing off much of anything at this point. <laughs> because most of the work is what I'm doing right now, sitting and talking to you. Uh, that's the majority of the work of producing the show now because I kept refining that process. Trello is helping me to do that. Um, so look for more from me on Trello, how I'm using it, uh, the, you know, the way I'm using it. I have mentioned this before because I know there's somewhere in here there's like a referral code. Um, I'm shame on me for not having that ready to give to you, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll eventually get that. <laughs> so, but in the meantime, if you need to hop in and start doing Trello stuff, man, I recommend it as a tool. It's a, it's a nice visual, uh, project management tool. <clears throat> um, so there's that. I wanted to cover that a little, uh, and, uh, you know, I've got a lot of things coming up. I'm on a nice rhythm right now. I had my release in, uh, late December or mid December. I got this one coming up late January. Uh, and then I, I have a book in progress that I, I believe can be ready for February. We'll, we'll just have to see. I'm going to have to play that by ear just a little. Um, I did not, I purposefully did not create a, uh, a scenario where I am trying to, you know, push myself to put out like a book a month or whatever. I think, um, the process I have, that could easily be the case, but um, 
you know, if I don't hit a month, I'm not going to ding myself over it. This isn't, this wasn't about me putting out a book a month or, or anything like that. Um, it is about consistent output. So if I get a book out in, in February, that's going to be awesome. If it's not until March, that's fine. Um, I can say though, that even after just two, two of these releases, uh, book income has been going up. And, uh, I think, you know, some of that is the, you know, there's that, what they call the 90 day cliff, which I think now is probably more of a 60 day cliff, maybe even shorter. Uh, and that by the way, means that your book is, is out. It's got some juice from Amazon. It's getting some promotion. Uh, but after a certain amount of time, it falls off. I have a theory about some of this. One thing that I think happens, um, when the book releases, it's got a lot of energy behind it, and Amazon picks it up as a new release and says, okay, this this has X number of sales from pre-order, it's doing pretty well, let's, let's give it some promotion on our side and see what how it does. But then after a certain set amount of time, some figure in an algorithm somewhere in Amazon, they, they say, okay, we've been promoting it and it's been performing at this level. Uh, let's turn off promotion to see if that level is sustainable. And that's the litmus test to determine whether that book is, is worthy to continue promoting. That's, this is a theory. I don't have anything to back this up. Just makes some sense to me. So Amazon pulls its promotion and the, and it watches. And if the book's uh, sales start dropping significantly, then they don't put any, anything else into it. If the book's sales maybe dip a little but maintain as certain within a certain tolerance, my theory is that Amazon continues to promote that book and continues to push it out there. Maybe not as strongly as it would for a new release, but it does it does know that um, if you like book X from author Y, you're probably going to like this book from Kevin Tomlinson because it's similar. So they're able to put all that together. And um, that's how I think they sift through everything to, to help um, refine the, uh, the recommendations. That's a theory. <laughs> Actually, it's a hypothesis uh, because I haven't tested it and I can't verify anything just yet um, and probably never will. So um, you may disagree with that. You may have a whole other perspective on that. You may have some actual legitimate insight into that that I lack, and that is all absolutely fine. Um, this is just how I'm operating now, and it's working out fairly well for me. So uh, beyond that, got a lot of stuff going on in February. Um, I'm hitting up some more conferences. I will be at the Smarter Artist Summit, although it's kind of up in the air as to whether I'm going to be uh, there the full time. Uh, but I'm definitely going to make at least a visit. I've got tickets in place. I haven't <laughs> haven't yet booked hotel or anything. Uh, and I'll probably just drive. But uh, I'm definitely going to be up there checking things out. Um, and uh, I'm also in February. I am somewhere. <laughs> Another conference in February. Where? Oh, San Francisco Writers Conference. Very big one. So I... I'll be there. Um, looking forward to that one. I actually, I'm looking forward to chatting with Jane Friedman. She's one of the keynotes this year. Um, if you haven't been reading her uh, her book, and I need to verify the title before I quote it, um, she's got a, a somewhat new book out called, 
one second. The business of being a writer. Um, excellent. This is, it's, it's not cheap. It's about 15 bucks. It's actually aimed more at the textbook crowd. So it's meant for like MFAs and things like that. Um, I say that, I mean, it's really, it's accessible to anybody who, uh, is looking for a writing career. It is, I'm not even kidding when I say this. It is the book that I wish I had read way back when I first started my writing career. Um, because I, there are so many things I would have done just slightly different had I known. Uh, but I had no real insight into how publishing worked. Now, I'm an indie publisher through and through. Uh, it's With each passing year, it's looking less and less likely that I, that I am going to pursue uh, traditional much. Uh, I've had plenty of opportunities. I've, I've passed on a few opportunities uh, that weren't quite right. So... It, it, I just kind of like the I like the flexibility and power I have as an indie author, uh, which is not to say I wouldn't accept the right deal, okay? But um, what I'm learning from the industry is applicable to to me as an indie, uh, to you as a self-published author as well. Um, lots of great stuff. So make, check that out if you haven't. It, it's worth the money. Let's just put it that way. Pick it up. Uh, whatever your preferred reading method happens to be, it's worth the like 15 bucks for the ebook. I mean, I rarely say that, okay? Because <laughs> most writing advice you can get for free. You can go to Jane's blog, just read her blog. Um, but this is a, a wealth of information in one place. It's a great reference, and uh, it gives you a real insight into how publishing works. And there is, there is a lot in there that the, the trade world um, does that we can leverage as self-published authors. There's a lot of information we can use there. Um, I don't remember exactly where I was going with that, but I know she's going to be at San Francisco Writers Conference. I'm looking forward to chatting with her. I've already been in email contact with her back and forth, um, so we're going to grab a cup of coffee or something. Um, after that, I think, let's see, I believe in March, I'm in Oklahoma City again, uh, this time for the Oklahoma City Christian Writers um, Association, I think. I'll be speaking. I'll be a keynote at that. And uh, then I believe that's pretty much it until May. Uh, I'm going to be at Comic Palooza in Houston again. So if you are in the Houston area, you can come out and see me uh, on the writer's track. The uh, uh, I think they call that the writer's track uh, still at uh, in Houston. That's usually at the George R. Brown Convention Center. I'll also be at a uh, conference in um, St. Louis, St. Louis, which I've never been to. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, and I got more stuff throughout the year, of course. So and who knows what's going to pop up between now and next January. <laughs> so if you are a part of a group, um, maybe you've got a a virtual group, a conference or something like that, and you're looking for somebody to speak. I'm doing a lot more of that kind of stuff now, so hit me up. I'm happy to chat with you. Uh, or even if you just want to chat sometime. I get people approach me about that, and sometimes I have time to do it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's going to be it. Uh, that's that's uh, how things are shaping up for the Word Slinger right now, and I uh, appreciate you tuning in, uh, being a part of the show uh, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying how things are going with my writing career right now. Uh, this is, this is a good time for me as a thriller writer, as an author in general. I mean, it's just, it's been kind of amazing to see, 
um, how changes uh, changes in the industry are, are some, somehow, some way magically benefiting me, despite people complaining about some of it. So I th- in that a lot of that maybe is just attitude. I'm not sure, uh, but I'm seeing a, a whole world of opportunities opening up. So hopefully you are too. I'm gonna help. I'm gonna help you find those. <laughs> We're gonna find those and mine those together. Uh, but I think a good start would be just like George Mercer, uh, this 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 week's guest. Um, take a look at your career as it stands now. No matter what it is, no matter what you're doing. I had a writing career, but I also had uh, jobs in other fields that really helped inform what I do. And I think that, that that is applicable to anyone, no matter what you do. If you're a truck driver, if you are, if you work at Starbucks, if you, um, you know, you change tires for a living, whatever it is you do, I bet you a dollar, I bet you a whole American dollar that there, there is information coming to you through that job that would be useful to you. There's experience and information that you can pour into your writing make it richer and deeper than you you probably ever imagined so all that said we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up god bless each and every one of you i'm so glad that we get to spend this time together uh i love all of you and i hope you have a wonderful weekend and week ahead i'll see you all next time hey thanks for tuning in to the wordslinger podcast now you can support this show by visiting wordslingerpodcast.com That's where you're going to find back episodes, books by me, and links to anything and everything Wordslinger. And be sure to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and anywhere else fine podcasts are sold. I'm Kevin Tomlinson. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.